Katie and I started Moose Talk uh, with the goal in mind to highlight the life's routines and wellness practices of everyday high performers, those individuals who otherwise wouldn't be highlighted on any sort of platform, but who are pouring themselves and their passion into their hobbies, their professions, and potentially even hobbies that they have turned into professions. It's our goal through this podcast to bring a greater sense of awareness to the lives of these individuals, to discuss what has allowed them to be so successful, and to understand what truly makes them tick. Episode three of the Moose Talk podcast. On this episode, we talked to Dr. Chelsea Kirk, the director and principal of the Goodwill Excel Center, an adult charter school located here in Washington, D.C. Uh, we had a lot of great conversation with, with Dr. Kirk around uh, topics mostly focusing on leadership. Um, we, we established an analogy that we'll use moving forward. I think it was a fun analogy of approaching leadership as, as a goalie, um, really looking at the whole, whole field while having a, a really narrow scope and a, one specific uh, end goal in mind. And we also get into a, a really fun conversation about around, excuse me, reframing what success really is. There's, there's so many um, podcasts and individuals that talk about kind of a one-track path of success. And uh, this goes back to, to really the goal of this podcast, to highlight individuals that are achieving whatever success means to them by uh, pouring themselves into their passions and their hobbies and, and truly doing something that's fulfilling to them. And, and that's exactly what Dr. Kirk is doing with her work at the Goodwill Excel Center. So um, really excited for this podcast. Let's do it. We had a chance to talk to Dr. Chelsea Kirk, uh, the director of the Goodwill Excel Center. Um, we have a lot of a great, great conversation to have with her coming up. Uh, before we get into that, the theme of, of this podcast is around leadership. Uh, we have we have topics that we could discuss ad nauseum when it comes to leadership. I know JD does, and it's something that um, I'm trying to learn more about personally uh, through reading and through conversations with JD and, and the conversations with individuals that we have on the podcast. Um, but one of the things that, that's always fascinated me and that I wanted to talk with JD about and hopefully get some input from the audience as well after this goes live is um, the, the concept of, of being a leader by title only and by position versus uh, being a leader by the actions that you, um, that you show to your peers or even to people that, that technically may be your uh, superiors or, or who may be your boss, whatever it might be. Um, for me personally, uh, this is something that I've always tried to take as much pride in as possible, uh, likely because of the fact that um, I've never been in a, a leadership position truly by title. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had one leadership role as, as the general manager of a CrossFit gym, but uh, I was only overseeing um, four coaches, and, and it was a great experience, but um, 
most of the roles that I've had through athletics and now currently, I've really been able to lead by example, which I think goes back to the idea of just because you don't have the title or you don't have the ability to, to tell someone exactly what to do, um, you still can absolutely be a leader through your actions. And, and JD, I don't know, I don't know how, um, how you would express this, but I think in some cases, leadership can be developed a bit more and stronger when you're in the positions where you don't actually have any physical title giving you power or leadership over someone else. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting to see if it... I certainly agree that it can be developed better. I don't know that it can be developed faster. Mm-hmm. And I think a really interesting example, it's so funny that this, that this topic is coming up right now, um, because recently I, I published a, a, sh- a really short write-up that I did on the Ranger Handbook. And uh, for those that you that don't know, I think I have it somewhere. Yeah, here it is. Um, so the Ranger Handbook is this book that you carry through Ranger School, and there's all sorts of stories about it, and um, you take countless notes in it, which just look like chicken scratch at this point. But um, you know, this is it's symbolic because it's something that you carry with you. You can't lose a number of things that go along with it. But many people know about Ranger School. The reason this is significant to um, being named, you know, having a leadership position that's designated with your name on it, as opposed to um, being identified as a leader or leading through, you know, by example or through example, um, came out in Ranger School as obviously as I've ever seen it. And for those of you that know, um, this will be familiar to you, but going through Ranger School, you are put into leadership positions. So you are designated, Matt, here's the stamp, mm-hmm. you're the leader today, let's see what you can do. Mm-hmm. And immediately you're put in this high stress, high pressure, timed and environment this is a tra- to perform. This is a training tool. This is a, this is a training tool, yeah. strictly for training. So just for that day or for that exercise. Could be an hour. So and so as leader, the next day that person's at Precisely. the bottom of the totem pole again, having to, to be led by somebody else who was previously in their position. The day exactly before. right. And that's part of the magic, right? Because if yeah. you're a, a shitty leader, for lack of a better term, to me, I'm probably going to return the favor tomorrow mm-hmm. when I'm in a leadership position. Yeah. But most interestingly, which it was to Matt's point, what is more effective, the RI, so the ranger instructor, and we'd, I'd love to get a ranger instructor on this podcast to talk through how they evaluated leadership. Um, but what they would do, and I didn't learn this until later, they would watch. So they would come in and say, there's 50 of us, and they designate you as the leader today, and they designate three other leaders. They watch and see who you select as your right-hand non-leader. Yeah, and so you goes, get to select somebody. That goes back to um, what Jason was talking about last week because I'm sure in some of those scenarios there were people that were like, well, if I select someone to be my right-hand man, I don't want someone that's going to help perform me. I want someone that's going to um, make me look good by mm-hmm. being not as good as me. When in reality, I'm sure some of the ranger instructors, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure they were looking for that. I'm sure they wanted, and, and this is the way that it needs to be. Um, I think this is the best leaders want to be directly next to somebody sharpening their spear mm-hmm. that's as good or hopefully better than they are at many things that way that they can actually improve. So I'm sure that yeah. was something that, that came up. At I'm sh- and I'm sure, and I think to your point, I think it depends on who was in that leadership position, yeah. who they selected, but nine times out of 10, at least the advice they provided was they said, we looked for who was selected again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So I named five people in a leadership position 
and two of them get to choose the positions called an RTO or radio telephone operator. And they're basically your shadow mm -hmm. and the, the shadow gets no credit for anything. And they do all a lot of the work mm -hmm. and you know, not surprisingly, the people that ended up being the top of their platoon after two months of training were, best radio guys. were always the best radio guys because everyone selected them. Yeah. They got no credit and they did all, a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And that is the lead by example, I think perfectly characterizes the role and, and not surprisingly, it's an execution heavy role, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, anyway, I thought it was a good good tidbit to share because I think it's one, we, I literally just posted this yesterday and we're having some conversations about this with uh, Rich who was my ranger buddy in, yeah. in school. But two, because it perfectly, in my mind, exemplifies someone that's given a tag for a day that's the leader, mm -hmm. and then who they actually select to lead by example and, and get them through the course. Yeah, and I think right now in particular, I think in the age of, of social media, there's, there's so many ways that we can see into the lives of people that we would have never been able to see into the lives of. Having said that, oftentimes it's through a, a, a what's the phrase? Rose-colored, rose-colored, whatever, whatever that phrase is, rose-colored lens, um, because everything is curated that you see on mm -hmm. social media. So I think when we're looking at leaders today, oftentimes we're most exposed to leaders that, sure, they're good leaders because of the success that they've had. They're quote-unquote good leaders, um, and we see them sitting on their, their throne, so to speak, and not really getting into the nitty-gritty, and I think one of the things that really stands out for that has stood out to me in really good leaders that I've been exposed to is that they're, they're not afraid to, when they see true value in, um, getting their, getting their hands dirty, mm -hmm. um, and really getting involved with the people that they're leading over. Uh, and I think that goes back to the way that, that I value leadership, at least right now in my life is, um, doing the work as a leader, um, doing the work that the people you're, you're leading have to do as well. And, and not always doing that work because there's other work that you're responsible for as a leader, but not being afraid or not being opposed to jumping in and getting your, getting your, your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think it dawns on me just hearing you say that out loud, that we really learn as much from good leaders as we do from bad leaders. I think people yeah. talk about that a lot, Yeah. but this is exactly true of execution focused leaders so the leaders that lead by example that, that develop or evolve into leaders because yeah. everyone watches them yeah. and emulates and learns and I think just based on the way that you phrase that is is part of the issue I have with because I've had bosses that are uh, and I have to be somewhat careful but I've had bosses that are terrible leaders and I am always very hesitant to refer to them as a bad leader because that implies that they were even a leader to begin with they were only a leader because they were able to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. I learned they were designated. exactly. And I think, I think it, it's maybe this is because of how old I am. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of questioning that our generation, my generation is doing of their superiors mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And, there's a level of respect that's owed to somebody that's older than you. And there's a level of respect that's owed to somebody that is your boss or is your superior. Um, there's no question about that. But in terms of being able to learn from the things that they're bad at, and if leadership is something that they're bad at, it's important to recognize that so that you then don't become the form of leader that Precisely. they are. Because right. then you'll never develop into a leader. Um, and I think 
that's something that's that's come out of our generation. And, and some people would view it as being disrespectful. And in many cases, it is. I see it all the time. People our age are have a very strong lack of respect for elders purely just because they're older, which there is that level of respect that's due. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that the good that comes out of that as well is is recognizing things that our superiors and our elders may not be as good at mm-hmm. um, and making sure that we are the opposite of that so that when we're put in that position, um, we can we can be what they weren't. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's, I mean, no, no leader is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, even the best leaders out there, I think each of us could name a handful of the, the leaders we look up to. All of them have weaknesses. They've identified, yeah. um, you know, how they lead despite that or because of that or through that or... Um, but, but it I, is, it's acknowledging that, though. I mean, the best leaders acknowledge that almost almost sure. to their fault to, to, at certain times because um, you, you need to understand your weaknesses and you need to fill your, uh, your, your, your group, your, mm-hmm. your clan, with people that can complement your weaknesses. Um, and if you're, you're so stubborn that you aren't able to admit, at least even to yourself, what those yeah. weaknesses are, um, then you'll never – I don't think you'll ever be able to develop into, into a leader, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly not one to emulate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that the the concept though of what what you choose to learn. So take us when mm-hmm. we're looking up to other leaders and what we choose to learn and what are the most obvious lessons we can apply as we think about um, you know leading by example as opposed to being named a leader. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's easiest to identify leaders and their failures where they failed. So like you were just defining, I don't even like calling them a leader. So the superior. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, they're designated as a leader. They're still qualified, and they are a leader, sure. and, and particularly yeah, yeah, that's a fair. military background. That's fair. Um, there was not a lot of option there. And I actually extracted far more from that that I apply. Those lessons are, right. I mean, seared in my soul in a way that maybe uh, a, a good to great leader, it's not as memorable. Mm-hmm. Whereas an exceptional leader, I would say it's equally memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something about those super tangible lessons learned, things that I should never repeat or never do myself when I'm in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, remember what it feels like to be on the other side of it. Those types of things that I think are so just so valuable. Yeah, and um, it was just recently on a, a consulting engagement that I was working on uh, where, where my superior, and this was a, a nasty project that we were working on, um, and it was terribly frustrating to work on. And my superior at the time, who I, I do view as a strong leader, um, pretty much out of the blue called me and said, Matt, thanks a lot for all the hard work that you're doing on this. And, and I, I don't know where it came from, um, but I, I said to him, it's, it's really easy to work hard when you have somebody else working with you who's working harder than you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, to me, having a leader that you know is working harder than you and you thinking you're working hard, there's really nothing more inspiring or motivating than that to work hard for that individual mm-hmm. um, so I think that goes back to really getting your hands dirty and making sure you are and again this is my affinity towards um, leadership by example but uh, making sure that as a leader you're showing people and not intentionally showing but just mm-hmm. making it allowing people to see how hard you really are working um, to complete the same goal that, that the people you're leading are also striving for yeah no, it's powerful. I mean, I think it's neat because it's such a simple story, yeah. right? I mean, it's not it's yeah. one comment. It probably took two minutes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, who knows how he's interacting the rest of the day. Right. But it's significant yeah. because of what he's done 
the rest of the 23 hours of the day right. and showing you that he cares about the project. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, we'll, we'll, we'll jump over to our conversation with Chelsea here. Uh, make sure you stick around for the entire conversation. Chelsea has some, some awesome, awesome, excuse me, knowledge bombs to drop on all of us. So, um, thanks a lot for listening and, and, and stick around for the rest of the episode. Thanks. Hey. Hey everyone, how are you? Hey Chelsea. How are you? I am good, sorry. I'm just wrapping up all that other no, stuff. How's your guys' day going? Pretty Flying good. By. Yeah. Um thanks Flying for by. thanks for doing this again. I know um this is we're we're learning as we go here, so I appreciate you bearing with us. But for whatever reason when there was feedback I pressed the mute button thinking it was gonna fix the feedback, which it did because we were not getting any audio input, so you know that's better than feedback. You know, at least you had. Um... <laughs> that's fair. So when JD and I went to go like pull everything together, we spent like an hour trying to figure out how to transfer the the video with the audio, and then when we went to watch it, there was no audio. So here we yeah. are. Well, at least it's on learn, um, in process. Yeah, exactly. Progress, or whatever you could call it. Um, so we can go ahead and get um, started. I'm trying not to be, I've been on calls since like 7 a.m. So I'm trying to be really not fidgety today. Apparently that's been an issue before. Like, why are you moving so much? Because <laughs> I've been sitting down all day since 7 a.m. Um, and we had a, our first virtual discipline incident. And I was like, this is so annoying too. So, you know. Um, but anyways, that is what's going on here. But I'll stop because now no one's working. So that's exciting news for everyone. So. Yeah, awesome. So we are joined here on, on episode three of the Moose Talk podcast with Dr. Chelsea Kirk. Um, Dr. Kirk is the uh, director and principal of the Goodwill Excel Center. It's a, an adult charter school located here in D.C. Um, Chelsea, if you could just give a quick introduction of who you are and the, the population that you serve and, and the school that you are the director of, that'd be great. Awesome. Hey, I am Chelsea Kirk. I'm the school director for the Global Excel Center, like Matt said. Um, I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and I've been in D.C. since graduating college in 2010. I almost said 2006. That's when I graduated high school. Um, and so I've been here. Never thought I'd come back to this area and have been here since. Um, I used to work for Maya Angelou Academy, which is a school inside the Juvenile Detention Center in D.C., and then I helped open up the school for the Global Excel Center which is an adult charter school for students ages 14 all the way up, or students who have not found a pathway to success in a high school diploma yet. So we are a high school diploma school for students looking to come back to school and earn not only their high school diploma, but career credits, I mean, career certifications, and also college credits. Awesome. And I think a question that inevitably will, will come um, from any time that we have, especially with, with everything that's going on right now, it will come with someone that's involved in education of, of any sort is um, how you are currently um, reacting to the things that are going on. Because I think really it's uh, for better or for worse, it, what has happened has really put teachers and, and directors like yourselves of schools. Uh, they, it, you've been forced to live in this reactive state for at least the, the start of the school year. So um, how have you guys been adjusting to that and kind of successes and challenges that you guys have seen and continue to see? Um, yeah, so we're living in pretty unique times. That's my work for Abnormal. And so we're living in pretty unique times. And so our last day in the school building was March 16th when all this started happening. And so I think schools and education systems are impacted because it depends on the access to technology and also internet to then connect to the virtual world. 
And I think also just it disrupts the normal, what people have perceived as a normal learning environment, right? So schools are founded on community, on relationships, and in the virtual world, that looks totally different. So we started our school year this year. We ended our school year last year virtually and had um, just had graduation recently for those grads. And then we started our school year this year virtually and are continuing virtually for the current time being. And I think for us, the biggest learning curve is just how do we engage people in the virtual environment? knowing that they have other life responsibilities other than school and knowing that virtual focus and virtual um, balance is a different thing than in the other world, right? And not only for students, but for staff too. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think um, one of the things that, that we've found, and I think a lot of people are finding through the experience of, of COVID, obviously it's been a, uh, a, a tragedy in, in many senses of the imagination, but anytime that there's a, a life event that you, um, are faced with there there's things that uh inevitably you you have to overcome and, and sometimes the solution to those end up being um things that, that you can use moving forward to kind of fast pace any change that you may have been considering um and i think one of the things at least in the the fitness space that, that jd and i have seen uh both personally as well as through MooseFit is uh for the longest time there's been all this conversation about uh, technology in the fitness space uh, i think We've seen it even before COVID, we've seen Peloton really, really take off. And, and obviously with COVID, they've started to do really well. But with all the conversation around technology in the fitness space, it really wasn't until something like COVID happened that really fast tracked that. And now you're seeing all these things pop up. I just saw uh, today, actually, that um, I believe it's Amazon came out with a $500 bike to rival Peloton. Apple Health has, has really started to, to pick things up. Um, and you're seeing more affordable options, which I think is, is really a great thing for the health and wellness space. So all of that to say, Chelsea, how have you guys seen any changes that you may have been considering with technology uh, kind of fast tracked because of the fact that you were forced into this event due to unforeseen circumstances? Yeah, so I think for a lot of schools that work with students who um, – a lot of students who might not have what people perceive as access to technology and to internet, I think what's really done is expose the gap that not only the achievement gap, but the gap in resources, right? Mm -hmm. So at a whole nother level, I think it's really put that on the front um, topic of conversation. And I think that the almost the silver lining to this is that societies had to work really fast to close the access gap and we're still lacking other gaps so we've seen a closure in that gap so people are now getting devices the issue is devices getting out to people is one thing but then how do you use the yeah. devices how do you make sure bandwidth is enough to use the devices so we're seeing that too mm -hmm. and i think the other issue is how do you increase your school's infrastructure to support the new technology boosts right mm -hmm. and not just students for staff too and so how do you onboard and train um, staff to get a comfortable and equipped to manage students' questions, and then how do you also build out your technolo te technology infrastructure? So we hired the IT person to manage all of our IT, which we didn't have a full-time IT person. We've built, we've dished out, or not dished out, we've deployed 80 laptops, 200 new ones are coming in. Um, but then it just, how do you manage a help desk from students and staff? And I think, so that's a silver lining. I think the other silver lining is virtual professionalism is a whole new world, right? So how do you prepare students to move into this, navigate this world where they might have to perceive interviewing or perceive, um, not even just perceive, negotiate space in a way that they haven't thought about it before. And I think that's really important. So we've really had to adapt and move into that world. Um, and I think lastly, 
I think a big part, and I know we discussed this before, is just working from home. It's not working from home. It's not learning from home. It's like living your life and doing your life at home. And so there's a real need for balance in terms of like your school. How do you carve out space in a house that might not have space physically to do your work or teach from home? How do you carve out mental space in a space where you used to go to school as an escape and that's just not happening anymore. You're going from your bedroom to your couch or just staying in your bedroom to learn. So there's this real focus now on um, a, a real new awareness on mental health needs, but more so on balance away from the word of self-care but balance in terms of how do you lead with empathy how do you teach with empathy so that you can understand how someone's coming to the learning environment more so than it was happening in the classroom so i think that's a real um a real thing that's been happening and i think the other thing is how do you then create a learning environment where students feel welcomed and accepted and can show up as they are in a space that might not be a space they wish to show up in so i think that's been one of the big focuses for us too yeah, so I see two, two points that you made that I want to highlight, and the first one is really a question for you. So as a leader in an organization like that that just transitioned overnight um, and, you know, arguably out of your control to this remote uh, operating environment, how do you cultivate culture among your staff? So less about maybe the, the students in this particular instance and more about your team. And the reason I, I raise this is we were having this conversation at, at uh, you know, among our business, our employees, and then our clients. And, you know, we had promoted the importance of uh, activities outside of work that you would do together, whether they're service-based or physical in nature or community-based. And the reality is all of that was taken basically overnight. Uh, and you had to come up with, with new and creative ways to establish culture, establish team, camaraderie, et cetera. So what are some things that you've done or thought about of your team to continue to, to hold that culture together? Yeah, so I think culture is everything. Um, so staff, so staff culture is everything. Schools run on culture. Organizations run on culture. Culture is everything. And I think how. So first of all, I think in terms of culture, like how you appreciate someone, how you show their value, and how you build a community off of those two things doesn't shift, um, whether it be physically in person or phys- or in the virtual space. And I think what's had to happen even more so from a leadership lens and for my own team, my leadership team, as how do you intentionally create time to engage with each of your team members? So, I mean, one of the other silver linings is I spend so much more time with my leadership team than I ever would have in the building because we're constantly communicating and talking in more ways than we ever would have before. And so I think how do you have that one-on-one time that's, you know, non-negotiable, this is happening to check in, not just on work deliverables and next steps, but on like emotional well-being. and to catch up on someone's life, to understand what's at stake or not even at stake, like what else is going on that might impact someone. Um, but I think also how do you carve out time to then also talk about the small talk that people just aren't getting, right? Because that's really important in this world too. Um, and so I think our staff culture, what we've done is we've really made sure that we have our normal routines that we had in the building. So weekly morning staff huddles, we still have celebration award ceremonies, we still have um, staff awards, staff incentives. Um, programming around mental and emotional support. So, so things that we had, we just didn't stop. One of the things that was a really great, um, we had last year was staff had 
facilitated session. So it was like panels of staff on like balancing kids and work. And that was awesome. So it was like staff being vulnerable and sharing their own experiences. And so I found that like empowering your staff to show their other sides in this time has been really helpful because then people's vulnerabilities aren't that vulnerable anymore. And I think as a leader, for me personally, not having to navigate many different things other than myself and my dog in this world, um, it's been really important to be like everyone's life is different at home. Right. And so whatever you're dealing with, we need to normalize it because nothing's normal right now. And how do we then come to a normalized place where we can say that we still have to do these expectations? And so I think, J.D., that's been a really tough part. We can have the culture and the rah-rah, but I think there's still these tough conversations that happen. And you need to make sure there's a space where it's not like all of a sudden someone's like, oh, man, now you're switching back. Right. Um, And so I think that's important in this virtual world, too. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect segue because what, what you just transitioned into was the, the second point I was going to make, and that had to do with your you know, carving out time for yourself. So you highlighted that at the end of what you were just talking about. And I think it's interesting when you say, I know you're, you're making light of it, but the fact that your responsibilities you know, have a lot to do with you right now and your team. So it's very it would be very easy for you to spend 99.9% of your time with your team, you know, with your students, with your school, with your organization you're building and growing. How do you carve out time for Chelsea? Um, so it's a work in progress. But so before pre-COVID times, I feel like my, my time was always this routine I created where I'd work out in the morning. I, you know, had this really structure and I call it like the in-between time is walking to work, walking home from work. And you just don't have that anymore. So what I have found is that and what I'm working on is just like sometimes just not responding to things that aren't urgent. Right. So that's one. And two is, um, I still like get my workouts in somehow and I try to do it in the morning, but that's a, you know, it's a work in progress. And I think the other thing is just having no screen time at some point. I know that's really difficult. I'm horrible at it. Um, but I try to go on a walk with my dog and I'm like, I'm not going to look at my phone. Um, so I think that's important. I think just having conversations with people that aren't your coworkers is really critical too. I think in this time, people have really relied on their coworkers and then obviously they're in whatever their living situation is, that's the people they see. So how do you then intentionally reach out to people outside that small circle um, to make sure that you have friends, family that you're connecting with because a sense of connectivity is what people are craving, but sometimes they're not doing the whole effort to really go after it. And so I think then the workplaces, whoever is on these teams becomes the only people that people socialize with. Yeah, that's a really interesting point um, that that JD and you, Chelsea, were just getting into. Because for me, I've worked in an office for six months out of my entire professional career. So for me, being in the remote setting has definitely created this sense of, um, I suppose, a hyper-focus on actually getting something done, um, which I think in the remote setting, it's really easy to just focus on the task and, and completing the task. But I've really missed out through my professional career in, uh, and part of it, maybe intentionally, maybe not, I don't really enjoy small talk necessarily. Uh, and I think that's part of what's been created in me because I've worked on it. That's yeah. word. Because <laughs> you're, you're podcasting, you know, basically small talk. Well, yeah, and I think so. I think this is a, absolutely a great exercise for me. But I think it it if we look at it the other way around, most people have never worked remotely before. So in some ways, it allows them to to sharpen a different tool in the fact that now they're able to have, or at least they're expected to have, a bit more of a a focus on um, actually getting the task done rather than um, 
specified time throughout the day when you're in the office that's important for small talking and building this community with your teammates. And I think that's something that cannot be discounted, but it also can't really be quantified, which which makes it hard to really see true value in, at least in my mind, because for me, I see far more value just based on my background in kind of the end result and making sure work product is is, is produced. But there 100% is a ton of value that people are missing out on right now in building that community, um, especially as a principal like yourself, where potentially you're exposed to new students and maybe even new staff that you don't really have a relationship with. Um, so really interesting foil there. Uh, I would like to, to kind of dive into some of the, the leadership topics. I know that's the, the theme of this podcast and JD and I were, were having a little bit of conversation on the podcast prior to jumping on with you, Chelsea. Um, and we were talking about the different types of leaders that exist and the different types of leaders that have, have influenced us and, and how whatever level of leadership we currently practice has been shaped. Um, so I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I know you played sports. I know you played uh, lacrosse, right, at, mm-hmm. at Dartmouth. Um, I'd love to hear how you feel your leadership practices have been shaped, either directly through events or practices or through other individuals. Yeah, so I played lacrosse at Dartmouth, and I'd have to say in all my life, growing up in Baltimore, lacrosse is kind of the way of life there, so that has been what I grew up playing. And I would say for so long, high school, middle school, all through, like, I was really a sports player, a lacrosse player, and that, like, identity was really what I, like, was and what I thought I, you know, would forever be my identity label. Um, and I think for me, I tore my ACL my senior or my junior year of high school and then the recovery process. I think also going to college, which is a brand new experience in terms of leadership, um, I played goalie in lacrosse. So just from that leadership lens, being a goalie and being kind of in the, seeing the whole field, I think going and being really good at my sport, going to college, I thought I would just naturally, you know, play a lot. And I think in college, what really humbled me and really shaped my leadership perspective. And I don't, um, I would say like, it's not that I wish it was things happen. I don't like to say things happen for a reason, but my experience really shaped who I am because I didn't play very much at all. And so going into college, I went from playing a lot in my high school career to then playing more on the bench and being a vocal support and being a filler in practices where needed and being that person who was on the two, you know, could go in any time, but didn't really play that many minutes. And I think for me that like really shifted how I viewed leadership and viewed my role on teams. And then also forced me to find ways to fill my needs of other things. So like I knew I was really good and I could have, you know, made the choice to say this really isn't filling me the way it used to fulfill me. And in college I really, then really made a decision to find other interests. So I like joined a sorority. I made sure that I found like I was already writing was my interest. So I became a creative writing major. I started doing art, which I never had done before. So how do you then leverage your skills and your talents in other ways to still make sure you're giving and doing? But I think for me, what I found out is that you can lead from not being the quote unquote leader. Like that's important. Mm -hmm. I think you can also lead in ways that aren't the visible leader. Um, and I'm someone who really sees like all the pieces fitting together. So from the back of the cage, seeing that, I think also it's hard to see that from the sidelines, right? Cause you're not in the moment in the action. So really having to like balance your emotions of wanting to be in the action, but then not being in the action, but then as a teammate still reaping the consequences of whatever happens in the action. Right. Mm-hmm. So I've had to learn that from it, from, from my whole experience. And I think, I think even in college, like just the, the thought process of do I stay, do I go, this team means a lot to me. So that leadership theory of just like what do I do? 
And I think just learning how to lean from a different position. Yeah. And then also being a little bit of like, what would have my experience been like had it been another way, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that really shaped my leadership experience and then brought me to here, which I think, I know we talked about this before, but as someone who is a leader, you're serving others all the time. And so in whatever way or shape you find yourself, how are you serving those that are on your team or in your environment? And I think... I totally think like as a teacher, which is as an English teacher at first, like you're serving your students, your school, your community. And then as a director, you're a principal, you're serving your staff and your students and your community. So how do you give everything and not, sometimes you're not the most vocal leader. Sometimes you have to take a step back and how do you play those roles? So I think my leadership experience has definitely been formed by sports hundred percent and by the shift in my position um in those sports roles that i've had in my life yeah it's really interesting i think um sports are are for for many reasons but for leadership development especially at a at a young age um it's a really shaping experience i think when it comes to leadership because you're getting exposed to people that are are just more talented than you are at certain things um you're also getting exposed to the really the first time outside of your your parents or a teacher that that someone is able to coach you um, and someone is uh, in a designated position that would be considered to be the leader of that team as as the coach but then even within that within your team you you, you naturally have people that whether they realize they're doing it or not I think at a young age you can you can start to see some of this play out but you start to see who has leadership tendencies and, and how people fit into the team environment because while the leader is obviously important on a team, there's um, no team without team members. You can't just have a, a team full of a team full of leaders. But um, I think you brought up a really interesting point, and I know JD, it looked like you you had a point that you wanted to make. But I think um, one of the things that we talked a lot about with Jason was the idea of of servant leadership. Uh, he used the phrase, "The lead is to serve." Um, and I know uh, based on what I see on on your social media, um, I see that you take the time to put yourself into the classes that, that otherwise you, you might not have to. Um, I know JD and I kind of laughed about this last time, but when I was a kid and even up through high school, the only time you ever really saw the principal at your school was, was if the teacher was, was getting critiqued that day or was, was being um, evaluated that day. And the teacher would give you a little preface beforehand and say, make sure you're on your best behavior. The, the principal's coming in, but I think if you could talk to just the importance in your mind of servant leadership and what it really means to you to, to get into the day-to-day -day operations of what your teachers are doing and how your students are, are operating within the, the structure. Um, yes, definitely. So I think the phrase or the term servant leadership definitely resonates with me. Um, I, you know, so I don't think I mentioned this before, but so I used to, at my old school at my Angelo Academy, um, which is the school that was inside the juvenile detention center. In the summers, we ran something called a freedom school. And freedom schools are founded from the civil rights movement. And they were like summer school programs that launch into um, learning opportunities. And so I would go down to Alex Haley's farm in Knoxville, Tennessee, and spend my summer there training and then come back to DC and run our school and the facility. And so um, freedom schools are based off of servant leadership. And so I felt like I was introduced to that term um, a bunch of years ago, and I never heard of it until then. And the people who are the facilitators who train those running the schools are called servant leaders. Mm -hmm. That's the title of their training title. And so when thinking about that um, in your question, it really brings me back to just anyone's job as a servant leader, right? If you, Even if you're not in a leadership position, your job is to serve your community. Your job is to 
whoever's around you, your family, your friends, be a leader to them and to serve. And I think so often we get twisted what it means to serve. I know it's, I feel like it's a growing, it's, you know, you're always growing and evolving. And I think serving often has a negative connotation. So how do we shift and reframe that to say, I'm empowered by serving, right? And so I think in my own world, in schools, 100%, like, our role is to not give the answers and to not create someone, but to serve the environment and the community so that people can feel empowered and make the decision that is best for them and feel their potential come in. Um, and it's not just for students, for staff too. And I think our job is to really put hospitality, customer service, and servant leadership at the front because our customers are our students and those we serve are our students. And we need to like, you know, embed those values at a very early state when we meet our students. Yeah, JD, I know through conversation that you and I have had, um, when it comes to kind of the, the concept of, of servant leadership, excuse me, there's a, a really quick transition and smooth transition into the, the idea of up and out leadership. Um, this is definitely your wheelhouse here being with the military background. So um, if you could provide a little bit of context to, to up and out leadership, and then uh, potentially we can we can see how that, that plays in with, with some of the practices that Chelsea uses as a leader. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Matt. Um, so it was interesting just hearing you say the neg sometimes there's a negative connotation around it. It just made me think, too, because whenever I, I think of the word service, I always associate it with something that is at least related to a selfless act. So um, I know right now it's got a very broad uh, usage, I think, probably. Um, but anything in the service space, I always think is in order to just serve something, you have to be serving someone else, and unless it's self-serving, which is not usually the context in which it's used. Um, Service-related jobs, industries, professions, uh, positions, etc., often have an element of uh, serving others and therefore selflessness. And I, I think we need more of that. So I love, I love that idea. I mean, servant leadership has been powerful and, and something that I've studied for a long time. But the idea of introducing that across industries that maybe otherwise would be considered service-related industries and making that something that we promote uh, and reward is really powerful. So one, thanks for bringing that up. Um, the the up-and-out leadership piece that Matt was referring to, which we may have briefly spoken about last time, is a concept that we drew from the military and brought over and coached uh, and taught around uh, leadership methodology at LDR. And the, the concept behind it. Um, we use a metaphor about um, conducting a raid. And an idea, just the, the short version is, when you prepare an operation and then you begin the conduct of an operation, oftentimes the leader is in a position of um, you know, friction, where there's going to be something decisive that occurs, good or bad, and needs to be in that position to make a decision. And what we, we caution and suggest is that a, leader, a leader's focus is always up and out. And the reason for that is when you're at these points of friction, it's very easy to become hyper-focused on the friction point itself, where uh, the example we use is a, is a door when you're breaching. So you're about to enter a building, whether you're conducting a raid or rescuing somebody, everyone gets so focused on that breach, that door. And the reality is there's a lot happening around the door, in the windows, on the roof, um, from other structures nearby. And a leader's responsibility is really everything else. There's plenty of people that can worry about that door. Um, but if he or she is not focused on the environment, is not looking up and out, they're going to miss it and not be able to react. And so that's a transition from, um, it's not quite strategic, but it is, it has everything to do with controlling the environment and being aware of the environment 
to bring in people that may be better in, in certain circumstances. So I guess my question for you, and I know we spoke about this briefly, um, in transition is you identify yourself as, and, and the goalie is the perfect metaphor for this, you see the whole field. You'd like to see how things could be placed. So whether it's it's players, pieces, strategy, um, you could help design what, what the future could look like. How does your role, like how do you see your role uh, both evolving? So from today being, you know, somebody that I would characterize as strategic, but also somebody that has a vision for how things go, including playing to your strength, but also including other team members, um, in, you know, in what I would consider to be your master plan. Yeah, so I'm going to answer that question, but before I'm going to say one thing that the up and out, and, the, and I guess we've talked about that, but that it made me think of was recently as introduced, and I don't even know the person's name who wrote this article, which is horrible, but to this um, analogy of the dance floor balcony view. And so as a leader, how do you know that you can stand on the balcony and see what's going on, but then also get down to the dance floor so that you can see what's going on in the environment? And JD, that really resonates with me because I think as any leader, you're constantly navigating these two domains, like down on the yeah. ground, also purview. And so I think a leader's constant challenge is how to find themselves not on the dance floor all the time, right? Like you need to go down the dance floor, you need to figure out what's going on, but you can't stay there because it's constant triage. Um, and so how do you then go up to the balcony, but then yeah. you want to navigate those spaces? And I think that's the leader. And some leaders are really uncomfortable being on the balcony all the time. Some are really uncomfortable being on the dance floor all the time. And there's no perfect balance, but you, um, you can't lead from one or the other. It's a mixture of both. So the up and out just made me think of that because so often in schools, um, any issue that comes up, it's not the actual issue. It's whatever context is around that issue. And there's so many factors that relate to it, right? Not like invisible and visible. And so, and when you think of school structure, which is my answer to your second question, is how do we then look at schools systemically and say like, here we are in our century, in our society, and here's schools. Um, and you know, a school like mine in a perfect world shouldn't exist, right? People should all be graduating with a high school diploma in, the, in this, utopia everyone's graduate with a high school diploma and we have a real issue in society of defining success is like you're a high school graduate you go to college in a world where everyone can afford college you go get a job or you go get more college degrees um i think so what's really brought me into this position now is and kind of what i studied when i did my doctorate is just how do we reframe the way people norm normalize success one like what is success like when you actually say someone's successful what defines their success and how the person actually feel like what are the traits that come with that successful feeling and then if you take schools how do you then throw schools on their back right like we know what's what is happening right now is not working um we see a lot of students not successfully complete schools we see a lot of schools not, not successfully be a school so how do we then create a new culture in schools and a new way of society viewing successful outcomes and say schools might need to look different than what we traditionally know a successful school and then what do we also know about students who need to find success in school and what are these pathways for success what do they look like because ultimately if we want to have you know our society continue on everyone needs to have certain skills and talents but how do we bring those out how do we then recreate what we say is successful and i think that we are in this way right now doing that i think people often you know people categorize people who don't have a high school diploma as a certain label a certain story and that's not true and in fact no one's story is the same and i think that's true of anyone and i think oftentimes we're stuck in this way of thinking about what it means in these very granular terms of what's your goal as a child, right? And that's really brought on by how we view success as a society. 
Yeah, Chelsea, I think that's a really nice nice segue into to the topic that we're really trying to cover on this podcast. I think we're 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 trying to do our part in changing the narrative around what success really means. Um, and I know we had mentioned this last time, but even by just using the word success, and you had mentioned this, that that immediately is contrasted with you have success here, you have you have failure here. But in terms of of the life of of an individual. Um, polarizing things to that extent can really leave a lot of people in, in no man's zone. And oftentimes that, that leads to them drifting towards what would be perceived as failure because they're not really sure what else they can really do because they don't have the tools, the resources, whatever it might be to reach what they what society has deemed as mm-hmm. success. So the way that we're trying to reframe this is is really talking to individuals like yourself who have uh, who are obviously high performers, but regardless of what it, what it is that they're pursuing, maybe it's someone that um, has has been able to to, to develop into a, a really good writer and really enjoys writing and, and writing poetry or whatever it might be. But they've identified that as something that they really like, and they're putting all of their effort and their passion into that. I think the amount of effort that you put into something should be a greater measurement of success. To put it in quotations. Um, you also mentioned a, a little bit about um, kind of the, the tools that people have, uh, particularly around some of the students at, at your school and the fact that a school like yours really shouldn't exist. A mutual friend of all of ours, Cassie, and, and, the, and JD and I were having this conversation about one thing that she's learned from this entire process is that her students who are younger, eighth graders, um, are learning real life skills unintentionally through having to navigate this online world. Um, and inevitably, these are things that they would have had to learn. Um, so I'm curious, how have you seen that playing out with, with your students who are in the different age bracket? Um, and in, in theory, they would be much more um, likely to have to use some of these tools in a job that they might have or whatever it might be. So have you seen that as a positive? And if so, um, how do you guys continue to, to kind of take that momentum into further using these these real life skills, which I'm sure you guys have already, um, much of your curriculum I'm sure is based on on real life skills. But if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Before I answer that question, I just want to say also, I think for anyone who's trying to change the narrative or change the way things are, the first step is saying like, I'm not So for example, for me, like I don't come from the community I serve, right? So I can't walk into a community and say like, oh, this isn't working to get the definition of success flipped on its head. And so I think the first step in understanding what strategy comes next, what's the big picture is like really learning that you don't know everything, right? And like really stepping into an environment. And this comes with where we are right now with a lot of, you know, racial unjust and just where we are right now, like, especially if you're working in a community that's not yours. Is just like understanding and navigating that you'll never be in that community the way that the community is themselves. And then also explain, and then also it's like realizing what are structures at play that create success from not happening in that, in that community, right? So it's not always, it's systemic inequality, systemic success narratives are just so seeped in like historic, just so much invisible narratives and so how do we then get to the root cause of like how success even came this way right and so that leads into your question that because what are people having to navigate in this world that they didn't know they had to before mm-hmm. it really is like these invisible barriers that existed about sure. access right everyone knew about them but here we are navigating barriers about access right. it's also just navigating like what's it look like for an adult student to be home with 
five other people who are all trying to navigate their own learning and then carving out time for themselves when they don't really have time for themselves. Um, how do you prioritize your mental wellness and well-being when you don't really have even five seconds to yourself? Mm -hmm. um, how do you advocate for things that you're seeing in your community that aren't right, right? Um, so I think what our students are seeing is just how faster, how to be an advocate in a way that actually gets change. Um, because we're in this point right now where change needs to happen faster. And I think that there is just a really, and we're also you know, living in election season, we're living in all this thing happening. So how do you utilize the resources around you and find the resources around you to advocate for change? I think also what people are being, or our students and our staff are being forced to think about is just like, what does a next step look like, right? We're seeing a real um, transition. You know, ultimately people want to work, people want to work in an environment they have passion for. But right now at the, where we are in jobs and unemployment, there's a real pathway to college. So what does that look like? What does it navigate? What does it, how do you get there? And then still not put yourself in a position where you're going to be regretting yeah. going into that step, right? And then still being able to carve out time for job employability and everything like that. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because it seems to be, at least with, with Jason and again with you, a, a theme of conversation. And I, I'm sure it's because of everything that's going on, but um, he earned an MBA from Georgetown. You got your PhD as well. So both of you have been exposed to higher education. Um, and Chelsea, being as close as you are to uh, what I would consider a progressive form of, of learning and a progressive form of providing people with education, how do you see both, uh, well, maybe not both, but how do you see the paradigm potentially shifting from the transition in, from high school to college and then taking that even one step further for those that have had the opportunity to go to college and who in a future, I'm sorry, in a previous world would have uh, considered going in and continuing their education past the point of an undergraduate degree. Yeah, I think people are becoming more comfortable in these online environments. So that's a positive, right? Mm -hmm. Especially since so many um, post-secondary options are still virtual now. I think JD raised the point of social skills. You know, where are we in that part? I think we're backstepping a little bit further from social skills and these emotional soft skills. Um, but I think the, the larger topic and conversation is just around educating people. I hate that word. I think it's about pro providing exposure to the opportunities that people can step into, but then actually how do you access that, right? Mm -hmm. Because now there's a lot more navigation tools you need to understand in the virtual world, who do you connect with, what forms you have to fill out, where do you go, how do you sign up for these things that were much easier when you could walk up somewhere and sign up and do an all-in-one stop shop. So I think that's more difficult. I think what we're also seeing is just, um, I think our students are leaving us more prepared to problem solve on their own where before they could just come to someone in the building and, you know, co-problem solve. And now there's a lot more isolation as we're all in these Zoom boxes or Teams boxes. So I think that's one thing that's definitely um, happening as a result of it. I think our students who are parents who are siblings are becoming much better at helping their own generation, their own kids and their households. But I still think there's less of a focus sometimes on the student, on our students on themselves, right? Because it's all about helping those who are around them. So I think school for us is an escape, right? And for our students, it's an escape. And I think for me personally, school's never been an escape. School's just been what's been expected or what I've chosen to do. So schools had a very different meaning and different innuendo. And so I think what's being really exposed right now is how school has different meanings for people and sure. what they're doing, but then how school can, to your point, be an, be an opportunity for like unlocking this next step 
if you can figure out how to navigate the structures that they yeah, I think that's great. And the last question that we'll leave you with, and um, we're excited to hear your response, and our plan is to ask this of, of all the guests that we bring on, but um, you've obviously been able to establish yourself in your chosen industry as, as a high performer, and it sounds like even prior to determining what you actually wanted to do, you, you've been a high performer most of your life. What allows you currently to not just be content with the status of your career and the work that you've done and the people that you've impacted, but to continue to strive for more impact, um, uh, impacting a larger group of people or a greater impact on the, the people that you're serving? That is a good question. Let's see. Um, I think, I think a few things, I think one, just knowing that, um, so I'm someone when you see something that's wrong, you're like, all right, how do we fix it, right? So I think in different levels of where I've been in different organizations, you see just like these gaping holes and you're like, all right, we got to go. How do we fix it? So I think it hasn't so much been how do I not stay content, but knowing that there's so much that needs to be solved and knowing that like in my experience, I've had some of the tools to go and solve those things. Um, so that's what's propelled me for. I think for me, I've always been so focused on students. That's been, I get filled by like, being around people. I'm a people person. I know that about me. I think one of the hard things in leadership is as you continue to navigate and move in different ways, you you remove yourself a little bit from the core mission and vision, right? So like if you're into school principals, sometimes the students aren't your everyday people that you see. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, and I think oftentimes in education, people are like, I'm going to continue moving in leadership so I can impact more. But I really think like my, my why or my reason is just that like, our systems aren't working, right? Like we can't sit here saying like we live in a perfect society with perfect systems. I benefited, I went to an amazing private school my whole life, went to Dartmouth, went to American, went to Penn and like have been privy to like all of the amazing educational opportunities that are there because of the way I was brought up, the society I came from, the environment I came from. But then there's a whole, there's a whole other pot of just individuals who aren't given those same opportunities that isn't because of their talent or their skill, sure. um, but because of, true exposure environment and opportunity so if the system's broken how do we not fix it and that system broken line isn't doesn't sit well with me i think we're, if we're all complicit in the system we're all part of it how do we move forward to then say why not innovate like i think oftentimes people are afraid of pushing against the status quo because the status quo has been okay but the status quo is not okay if there's gaping holes in front of us mm -hmm. i think the other thing is just i think for me it's just I've had to step back and say like, wow, I'm so proud of like all the staff that I've worked with who've really impacted people, right? So I never thought, you know, students were my focus. Here we are creating this culture and this environment. But then who are the people that you're leading? It's not the students, it's the staff to then create that culture and that environment. So if I can help, you know, shape um, people's um, mindsets around what cultures need to be available for students to succeed, then that's not a student shaping activity. That's a staff shaping activity. And to do that would be meaning to have to continue moving in ways that like impacts more people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's such a need when you think about archaic systems, um, schools are one of them. So how do you shift people's mindsets? And also like, I don't know, like, I wish I'm, I'm making myself sound like more rebe rebel than I am, but how do you, um, I mean, it's just not working, right? So how do you say, this isn't working, here's my evidence, and then try something new and not being afraid of saying this might not work, but we're going to try it. Um, and then really hearing the stories from the students that you serve and the people who you're serving. Yeah. 
So I don't know. Complacency has just never been my thing. And you're probably going to ask, how is it not? But I'm someone who gets like, I can't stay in one position for forever, right? When you see other things going on around you. But I think the, the, the bigger question becomes, how do you get people who are in your communities that you're leading, who are in your like area? Not everyone can be like complacency isn't a thing there is complacency but like i have some of the best teachers who have no desire to lead schools right our school couldn't be the school it is without these amazing teachers who've been teaching for forever and how do you then not get people to look down on people like our teachers who because they don't want to be a leader that's not an issue right or if we can equate that to another organization so i think it's not only reshifting mindsets but it's like how do you employ leadership skills on other staff and other positions to then make people see their leadership potential in those ways mm-hmm. and then also garner further leadership. And I know, J.D., you, like, do this for a living, but I think it's, like, how do you really make everyone see their leader is the biggest thing, I think, in my purview. I don't even know if I answered your question. No, 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 you totally did. It's always interesting to hear to hear the why, but not so much, and you answered it perfectly, not so much the why into, like, why you get up and go to work every day, which I think that would probably be – a a slightly different answer, but I think the why behind why you continue to strive to see more and greater impact, I think is, is, is a valuable lesson for people to, a valuable topic to, to discuss and for people to hear. I mean, I really like the last point. I think we could talk about it for a long time. Um, I guess the one thing I, I wanted to say, and I hope this doesn't come off as a challenge, but, um, you know, based on your, your last point, when I think about the experience I've had in leadership and, and a number of the mistakes that I've made and also the lessons that I've learned, it, it, it often dawns on me that I recognize, and you could take any scenario rather than giving a specific example, I'll just talk generally, but there's always an opportunity for you to jump into a, an instance or an experience, a lesson where you are impacting a student directly and you will likely have a greater impact on that student than their life than if you didn't jump into that scenario. Um, but you have to pick and choose really carefully when you do that. And my, my point is you would get a lot more long-term benefit, um, you know, residual or perpetual benefit from coaching the teacher after the fact and missing the opportunity to teach the student. And that's a very, very small example, but I think it goes to the point you're making, which is, you know, you are leading your faculty, your team, and while the students are, you know, secondary beneficiaries of what you're creating, the greatest impact you can have, and, and this is certainly my opinion, but the greatest impact you can have is through your team because of the you know, exponential impact they will therefore have on their students mm-hmm. and you know, generations of students to come. So as you balance that, I know it's something that I've struggled with personally because I often want to jump down and have that outsized impact on the student that they can, they can feel right away, I can see it right away, and I feel better because of it, but it would probably be better for me to develop the teacher and help the teacher have that impact on a future student or maybe 10 students or 20 students. Um, so I'll, I'll pause again just to, to turn it over to you because of your experience there, but that may be when I think of, of you and hear the things that you want to accomplish in your life, um, it just makes sense to me that what you're doing today is is doing that. Like you are having this outsized impact on a community, but then what happens next for you? And I see like tremendous things if you're able to um, extract, maybe the wrong word, but explore what an even larger impact would have in a very similar environment. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yes, I think 100%. I think 
you know, for me, when I, I thought I never wanted to be a teacher, then I was a teacher. And I was like, oh, I'll never leave the classroom. I love, love, love the classroom. Then I became an assistant principal, and I still taught because I was, like, refusing to give up my classroom space. Um, and then I couldn't be a print, you know, I couldn't do some roles of teaching because it was just impossible. And I think it took me a really long time. And I think in part, and I hate using my age, but I think in part because I was young and I thought it was harder to lead people older than me than it was students. Like, I think honestly, that was it. Um, and also people have had way more experience in this world than I had. And like, I was, you know, learning from them still. And so I think it took me a long time, not a long time. It took me time to realize that as a school leader, your role is secondary to students. It's the staff. And that you really have to, like, understand the culture that you want in your staff and understand who's on your bench, right? And taking it back to a sports analogy. And how do you build your bench? Because you're not going to be there forever. Yep. And also, how do you then build your bench to then say, I need a three-point buzzer beater right now. Like, who can I put in? And I think, for me, it's really been being okay, I'd say also more in like the last three years has really been when I've come to this, like being okay that you're not going to see students every day. It's right? six o'clock. The space has actually helped that a lot. Um, being okay that your day is fully engrossed in staff because that's who you're leading and that's who's then building up that impact. And I just, that for me has been a big mindset shift because I just love being around those that we serve, but it's the whole community that's serving them. And I think so much, um, if I relate it back to like even the goalie analogy, like sometimes you don't see any action in the goal, right? And that's totally cool. And you're standing there all game, like you're killing it. The team is doing nothing and it's boring, but you're still there, right? So how do you then create this? And you've got to be okay with those games where there's nothing happening. Mm -hmm. And even the, when I wasn't playing, like the sideline, like you're still in there. And so I think that's been something definitely that I've had to battle with or grapple with and then be okay with in leadership for sure. And I think also calling out this age part, like I think so often people are like, oh, you're, people will say like, oh, you're young or oh, this or oh, that. And like, yeah, I know I'm young. But I think the other thing is I was told once to never, never say you're young. Like no one's really young. It's all about like the, how you present yourself and the experience you have. And then also never saying that you know what's, know what's going on because you never know. And so I think for me, that's been the most important thing. And then also knowing that I truly don't know because I truly am not living the same life anyone's living in my experience right. and so learning and having this like critical listening skill which has been another learning curve for me too well chelsea i know we could probably continue to talk for for quite some time but um potentially for another conversation on another day um really appreciate you taking the time to, to hop on again with us um love the conversation love the, the the ideas that we were getting into there um so thanks a lot and um hopefully you enjoy the rest of your night no problem. Um, yes, you guys too. Have a great night. Y'all aren't in the same space. I'm just realizing that even though you have books. We're not. Yeah, it was a relatively relatively short <laughs> <laughs> relatively short turnaround between the end of the day and this, as I'm sure it was for you. Um, one thing I will mention, um, and JD, this is maybe an update for you and, and the listeners can hear this as well. Um, coming this Monday, we will be starting our, our, a staff pilot with the Goodwill Excel Center. So um, pretty pumped about that. We've got, I think it'll be between like eight and 12 people, uh, eight, eight and 12 staff 12 members, to 15 12 to 15. Yeah. So it's going to be, going to be an awesome little pilot. So stay tuned for, for updates on that, but thanks again for your time, Chelsea. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, guys. Thanks, Chelsea. Of course, have a great day, night, whatever time it is. <laughs> um, and thank you guys too. Absolutely. See ya. Bye guys. Smoke talk, no conversation That look makes me impatient 
Thanks for tuning in to episode three of the Moose Talk podcast. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Chelsea Kirk. We had a great conversation. We hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with her as much as we did. On the next episode of the podcast, we're going to have Elliot Howe on the show. He is uh, quite the character, um, a good friend of mine, a good friend of Katie's. He is the um, director of catering at Astro Donuts, and he is the general manager of the Wonder Garden Beer Garden located in Noma. Um, super excited. We're going to have a great and I'm sure um, unique conversation with Elliot to say the least. So uh, stay tuned. If you do have any questions or you have anyone that you think would be a good candidate for the podcast, please let us know. You can reach out on Instagram. Our handle is at MooseFit. If you're interested in learning any more about the individuals that we've had on the podcast or anything more about MooseFit in general and any of the services that we offer, be sure to visit our website, www.moosefit.co. If you don't mean it, you know you got me in the palm of your hand, but I love those hands. Still on